Welcome to the School of Calisthenics podcast with your hosts, Tim and Jacko. Yes, that's right. It is time for another podcast. And this week, we are guests on the Pacey Performance Podcast. This guy brings some pedigree to the table. He gets some very prestigious and esteemed guests in the world of sports performance. And now he's got us on. We did a little bit of reminiscing on how the school calisthenics started and our own experiences in calisthenics and then got deep into uh, how we've been exploring using this in the more sort of traditional strength training environment as S&C coaches, uh, sharing the types of things that we've learned and uh, how it can be beneficial in the sporting environment as well as for those of us that just want to look cool in the gym or for a nice holiday photo like me. <laughs> so not only the uh, the performance, but also the psychosocial benefits of calisthenics yes. training as well. So sit back and enjoy, guys. This is Jacko and I on the Pacey Performance Podcast. That's alliteration, which those of you who will follow knows that Jacko will very much enjoy it. You can imagine how excited I was to be on that. <laughs> enjoy this one, guys. We had a nice chat with Rob. He's a great guy. And if you want to find out more about him, you can head over and sign up to his Pacey Performance Podcast as well. Roll the jingle. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to co-founders and directors of School of Calisthenics, Tim Stevenson and David Jackson. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I am absolutely delighted to get these two guys on who I have huge respect for. So they've got, got huge respect for them, one, because they're great guys, and two, because of what they've built in the School of Calisthenics as a business and a brand and everything that goes around. The quality of their products, the quality of their presentations, the quality of their delivery, as you'll hear in two or three minutes, the quality of how they speak and the information they give, just everything around about these guys fills me with so much respect for them. So in this episode, we start with um, speaking to, to Tim and Jacko about the vision of School of Calisthenics, where it came from, the background, etc. Then we, we move on to building bulletproof shoulders, which was a presentation that they, that they gave at the UKSCA conference in 2018, which I thought was absolutely excellent. They've replicated that and taken it to a couple of places in pro sport and delivered um, that presentation again to help with certain clubs and, um, and certain organizations with their shoulder health of their athletes, as we'll speak about in this episode. Then we move on to uh, progressions and regressions with calisthenics and the benefits of using calisthenics and where that fits into the wider, uh, wider strength and conditioning program. Some of the transfer of strength to, to sports performance and then finishing off with core stability training and the... the um, the discussion around isolated work and then some progressions and regressions around that. So it's going to be an absolutely fantastic that I'm sure you love and there'll be plenty of uh, note-taking needed and plenty of things to take away for you to um, to utilise with your athletes tomorrow. So enjoy the episode with Tim and Jacko. 
This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU-STEP from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running-based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Tim Stevenson and David Jackson from the School of Calisthenics. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Stevenson and David Jackson from the School of Calisthenics. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, uh, how you doing? Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. And apologies for the very, very annoying technical issues, but... We'll crack on, we'll crack on. But thank you for coming on. Um, so I'm going to come to you, Tim, first, just because it's the first on the um, on the list. No no favouritism here, of course. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll come to you, Tim, first. Anyone that um, doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a quick run-through of what you've done previously, education-wise, and what where you fit in the School of Calisthenics. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've... Being a strength and conditioning coach from for about last last eleven years, um, I started out with an internship um, working with a company called Sport Nine Eight One. Did a lot of my first early years, about five six years in university setting, um, and that was a, it was a great sort of um, proving ground and cut my teeth if you like in that in that setting where you've got uh, twelve performance teams, twenty TAS athletes. Probably coached something like thirty different sports while I was there because of the variety you get in university sport um and at the same time I, I, for my UKSCA case study I actually started working with a, a Paralympic athlete a guy called Richard Whitehead double leg amputee um and that sort of launched me into Paralympic sport which has pretty much become um, a specialism I suppose over the last sort of yeah say 12 years um and then five years ago Jack and I started just playing around with some calisthenics um, just for something a little bit different. I've had some shoulder injuries in the past and I was trying to find a way to stabilize a repeatedly dislocating shoulder that had two surgeries and, and none, none of the physio stuff had worked. So 
in a in my logical mind decided that if I could learn to handstand that would give me some confidence that my shoulder was a bit more stable um and and yeah hence found my way into sort of bodyweight training and and it sort of grew from there really and Jacko had just finished playing rugby around the same time and was doing bicep curls in the gym and I roped him into trying to teach him to do some uh, some bodyweight training and we just kind of fell in love with it and uh we were awful when we first started um but the we eventually sort of put some time in and um started to progress what we were doing in our own training and then other people sort of started asking if we'd teach them and we, we sort of the school of calisthenics was very much born from from there really um just i'll let jacko jump in in a, in a second but um in terms of education wise I, I did my master's degree in 2015 uh in exercise physiology and then was also just a part of the um british team at the rio 2016 paralympic games running the holding camp for those guys in Belo Horizonte and then also into the competition venue with with swimming so it's a bit of a, a sort of all over the place history but um yeah there's some some familiar threads that sort of like connect it all together nice just before we do get on to jacko who were your initial influence influences in the calisthenics world uh, the first person that we ever saw in calisthenics was frank madrano um, mm-hmm. he's got a video on, on YouTube with uh, multiple millions of, of hits and I remember seeing it and thinking it just looked unbelievable I'd not really seen a guy move like that before um, and I think one of the interesting things in the early days from where I'd come from a lot of my early sort of qualifications and strength and conditioning were with the National Academy of Sports Medicine and I still really like their training system and, and their philosophy around um, understanding like, sort of functional movement and the, the principles of functional anatomy and how that then transpires into effectively being able to coach any sort of movement um but a lot of it had been as typically as we are you sort of strength endurance training hypertrophy power training and bodyweight training originally is sort of it always been i guess classified as what beginners do um and never really kind of in my philosophy i don't think stood aside stood alone as sort of a really effective and um progressive system that you could use within a strength and conditioning program and the, the, the reason was probably because I just not really explored it and didn't understand the depth of it. And then when I saw Frank Medrano video, I was, I just, uh, yeah, it blew me away. And I thought I need to sort of understand a bit more about this. And, and partly it was for my own training, but also to help just um, another component of my training program with athletes. What else, what other tools have I got as a strength and conditioning coach in the locker that you can start to use with athletes to help them to perform? Nice. So we'll come on to the vision and the kind of resource that you guys offer at, at School of Calisthenics. But over to you, Jacko. Bit of background. Uh, yeah. So um, David Jackson, or known as Jacko, um, my I played uh, professional rugby for uh, in the championship for about I think about eleven, twelve years. Um, before I had a head injury that ended my career slightly early. I was thirty-one at the time, so I was on my way out. Um, and that was yeah, that was six years ago. Um, I met Tim at the same time through a friend of ours at church. They introduced me to someone that had uh, in the SNC world that was that was local, and um, I basically sort of went on a, a, a journey of going out of professional sport into into a new a new job. I'd always loved uh, training and trying to understand a little bit about it, and so SNC for me um, was a was a good fit. I'd not done anything um, at, like at university. I'd done uh, a master's of materials engineering, so nothing sport related, but I guess science related. Um, and yeah, went through, uh, did the same uh, training that Tim had done with Sport Nine Eight One, uh, but worked under the 
tutelage, I guess, of of Tim. I didn't have a uh, any sort of burning desires, particularly to work in Paralympic sport at the time. It was it was just that that's where he was specialising in. What it what it turned out to be was a, a fast track to understanding the body and the training and how this all fits together uh, a little a little more quickly because we weren't I wasn't able to whatever what I was sort of learning say in the classroom or from the textbook it's then another step to then apply that into the the Paralympic athlete that may have some sort of impairment that we've got to change things up so. Um, for me at the time, I was doing a lot of learning, uh, which I do love, uh, but it, it definitely felt like that's helped me. And, you know, with, with Tim's tutelage has helped me to get to a level in the last sort of five, six years uh, that I probably wouldn't have done if I'd have just stayed in a traditional, or is that just how I feel in a traditional uh, environment? And and I, I sort of mentioned that because what we ended, what we've ended up doing with, with School of Calisthenics was as Tim mentioned, trying to learn it ourselves at first, um, particularly found it motivating to do something a little bit different. I'd got, I'd always wanted to carry on training when I'd finished playing rugby, but I got bored very quickly of doing the same things I'd always done. So for me, it was about doing something different and trying to learn to do something new with my body. And then as Tim said, we started to see what elements of this can, can really benefit uh, the athletes that we're working with, particularly the sort of overhead and throwing athletes and the swimmers. Uh, there's a lot of crossover and benefits. So things that we found were helping, uh, we, we started to sort of drip feed into into programs where appropriate. And um, the athletes loved it as much as we did because for those same things that are around it being motivating, about it being interesting, just a little bit different. And it's sort of, I guess it's just grown and grown and grown from there. The The... The sort of thought experiment that Tim did around stabilizing his shoulders overhead through a handstand um, came true. Um, the, the theory was tested and he's never dislocated it since. And that sort of led us down There's this route of, I know you want to talk a little bit about it as we go into it so I won't steal the thunder, but um, building bullet, bullet, bulletproof shoulders, There's there's uh, we're starting to now unpick and, and try and do a little bit of our own research into, into what are the benefits and, and why that is being the case. Um, but we've certainly, I guess, ourselves living proof and then also the athletes that we've been, been using it with as well, uh, the benefits of body weight training, the closed quality chain, we'll get into that a bit more detail later. But um, yeah, it's been it's been a fun a fun journey and uh, that's sort of where we are, where we're at today. Nice. So Jacko, the, the transition from playing to not playing how, how was that for you do you find it quite difficult and the only reason i ask is there's been a couple of people who i haven't i knew you played but yeah. previous guests who've made that transition and we've spoke about it and one was last week was a guy at crystal palace who played like 15 years league one league two kind of level yeah. and then instantly found himself in a back in a professional club and it was very it seemed very seamless which wasn't my experience probably yeah. because i wasn't the one who decided that it was going to end yeah. whereas um scott it, it did but how was that for you what was that transition like for you yeah i think it's it's something that i uh yeah say so you, you go through an experience and everyone probably has a slightly different experience um, in rugby particularly, uh, and it's the same across many, many, many sports, unless you're sort of, um, you know, an absolute big international hitter that you're, and even those guys, you're like, you know, you still see Johnny Wilkinson on TV doing punditry, you know, is that because he needs the money or is it because he just wants something to do? It's almost sort of 
irrelevant that basically the the long and short of it is we're all going to need a job after we finish these careers um in sport and my personal view is that we it's getting better from from what i've heard from some of the younger lads i've spoken to before but we're not that well equipped across many sports partly because we just don't have the resources to um prepare us for what that for that transition particularly like as I say for myself it came from um an injury I was starting to think about what I wanted to do post rugby um but I'd not actually started putting any building blocks in place uh and I didn't want to do I was looking that I'd done a I'd done an engineering degree of actually a qualified teacher as well so I had a career I could have gone into, but I didn't want to go down that route. And so I was sort of starting again, which is the same for someone that, say, hasn't done anything alongside the rugby careers. And if you're doing professional sport and you're trying to maximize it, the messaging sort of almost rightly so is we're trying to maximize our performances. So actually a lot of the time it's trying to take away any external things that are going to impact our performances. So potentially not that encouraged to look at what is life going to be like for you after your sport is finished. Um, but so I do think it is, I do think it's important that people are helped with that and looking, looking at that. And, and it, it's, it's just the reality that it's gonna, it's gonna end at some point, whether you have a beautiful career and choose when to retire or whether it, it happens to you. Um, I had the added bonus of, uh, or difficulty, not bonus at all, but difficulty of getting over my head injury, which, um, took a few, took a while, um. It was. I had my head injury in the August, and then it wasn't until the December that I actually announced my retirement um, because we were trying to get back to being able to play. It then took me a year to be able to run without getting a headache. And in all honesty, there was there was a period where I wasn't sure whether I couldn't I couldn't read a book, I couldn't look at a computer screen, I couldn't concentrate on anything. So th- there was a period where um, I did wonder slightly whether. Uh, I was always told I'd make a full recovery, but when you're in the mix, midst of it and no one can tell you how long it's going to be, you do wonder uh, whether you'd be able to even... There was a period where I did think, am I going to be able to do a proper job? Um, That's pretty so scary. It is a massive... Well, but now it feels like a long time ago. And now you know, I'm absolutely fine now. And now you do handstands for a living. Yeah. <laughs> which is a proper so, job, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's all... It's, it, you know, it, it's all worked out well. It's been a blessing in disguise. Good. So let's talk about School of Calisthenics. So we've had a little bit of a chat around kind of where that came from, but what at what point did you realize this is actually, like you said, this is actually a real job. We could we could potentially make this into a real job. And then, you know, where did it go? What was the initial vision? How was that um, developed over time? Let's have a little chat around, around that. Yeah, so it, as I said, it, it grew very organically from a starting Sounds point. Funny, sorry, but you say a real job because I'm I'm just laughing at the. I'm like feel like we're just pretending it's a real job. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice fun thing about being sort of having your own business. You get to decide and dictate what it what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. I mean we laugh about it because when we first started, I mean. Jack and I are both ex rugby rugby players, um, and if you know what people who've played rugby look like when they try and do new things, potentially athletic things in the gym, um, particularly around the upper body, um, we, we we both played from sort of nine, ten years old, and had no background in gymnastics or or anything like breakdance or anything that would actually have been sort of helpful for a transition to calisthenics. So we moved just like two broken rugby players who'd never done any gymnastics before and people will be able to envisage what that looks like. And we're both fairly athletic in in the sense that we can learn new things, but it got to the point where someone came over to us in the gym one day and said, 
what are you boys doing? Because it looks like you're just pissing about. <laughs> Which essentially is exactly what we were doing. Um, <laughs> yeah, because at the time there was no one, you know, these days, I guess we maybe see it a little bit more, but there's a lot of people trying to do handstands and, you know, in CrossFit, there's various calisthenics elements and gymnastic elements. Like it's not that weird these days to see someone doing some sort of body weight movement or a, a, a kicking up against a wall or something in a gym. Um, so when was this, Jack? Then, sorry to interrupt. Um, so that's, this is like five, six years ago. Yeah. Okay. When we yep. very first started and there was nobody in our gym. You know, we were sort of doing stuff on the machines and stuff like just what we could, like hanging off the side of a lap pull down, trying to do a flag or whatever, because there wasn't any equipment, but we were just getting, uh, getting creative. Um, nice. yeah, so, yeah, so from there, we, we sort of put some time in and then uh, people just asked us if we would put a course on. And, and because everyone knew that we were strength and conditioning coaches in the gym, we were sort of starting to use what we learned from Paralympic sport to sort of break down a, a, um, uh, the, the training process and understand what it was that you actually needed to, to, to do. And, and that was one of the real struggles that we found when we were coming into calisthenics that no one really knew what to do if you weren't coming from a background of always having some form of sort of gymnastics experience. So how do you coach somebody who's never done anything before to do a human flag? Um, what are the real sort of elements? And then what training progressions do you need to do to, to put those in place? And, and that was the real vision to start off with was we were really enjoying calisthenics we've got sort of a few main principles about, about what it's all about for us, but one of them, it helps people to move better. You can get, you can get really strong upper body wise uh, from doing calisthenics. And the, and the big one for us was it was fun. We I'd got bored of going in the gym and sort of doing, right, I'm going to back squat this, this next four weeks. What am I going to do is I'm going to do 10 reps or am I going to do five reps? And, it, and I just got a little bit tired of doing the same thing and, and program hopping around between different adaptations and, um, calisthenics for us was just about play we, we were going in the gym and we were just having fun trying to do things and, and moving in different ways trying to explore that kind of what what can you do with your body and that skill acquisition process was addictive because you in the early stages of learning to do something you haven't done before it, it goes really really sort of you, you learn really quickly so you go from one session to the next of actually seeing like tangible improvement whereas you Anyone who's strength trained for a long time will know that it can take quite a lot of time to put five, 10 kilos on a, on a back squat, for example, or a bench press. Um, and, and the big thing to start off with was just to try and help other people get that enjoyment out of something that we, we were massively having a good time with. Um, and that's always been our focus is really on, on, on trying to help beginners to um, to get into calisthenics because it, it can, when you see the Frank Madrano video, it can look intimidating. But that's often just because people don't have a, a progressive and systematic training approach to actually understand how to do some of the stuff. Um, and it's evolved from there now into what we're doing around the sports performance stuff, as Jacko mentioned, around around the shoulders. But um, it's essentially always been about just helping people to have more fun with their training. So at what point was the kind of light bulb moment? This could actually be something that we can package and, and sell and offer, to, offer as a product to pro sport, to weekend warriors to whoever um well it probably is the whole thing's been quite a organic process as tim said as we got a little bit better people that, that, that knew we were snc coaches was like well if you're a coach can you can you teach me how to do uh this human flag or whatever it may be and there was a point so almost a point bef slightly before that where we were trying to figure out, I remember literally Googling or putting into YouTube, you know, when you can't do something, you just YouTube it. It was how to do a human flag. 
and a, a two you know there was a there was probably a few tutorials but the tutorial we clicked on you know called it so it was just a guy doing it just it looked like he'd give his phone to to his girlfriend in the park and said right record this and he went this is how you do a human flag and he just did one yeah. and you and, and you're like okay so we we were sort of i mean we didn't it wasn't like we scoured the entire universe to find out but it, it didn't appear to us that there was anyone breaking this down and actually figuring out what are the building blocks that we need to to develop and and how do we put this together so that we can do something that seems impossible and that's sort of where the strapline redefining impossible comes from that this stuff felt impossible and we know you know to for us it felt impossible as well um and we've actually got the i don't know how long it's maybe three or four years ago our first actual workshop we did we've got a youtube video and i have to share the link with you where we've got three guys um doing a, a human flag on day one and then six weeks later like their first ever attempt and they've won six weeks later and um yeah it's quite staggering the uh the improvement They're like it surprised us so that at that point we were like crikey this really works because they were like you know the, the progress they made in six weeks was way beyond the progress we made in six weeks because we were making loads of mistakes as we went and even now still we refine the teaching process that we go through and we start to to learn and understand more stuff um and then I think so that it sort of started with that of in terms of a what, what did you to use your phrase weekend warriors I think you said yeah, the first course we ever ran was called um, <laughs> survival training strength training for survival in the urban jungle which was uh, nice. <laughs> a little bit of just a tongue in cheek thing of going well if you needed to save your life like could you could you actually are you strong enough to pull yourself out like up off a balcony or off a cliff edge and it's it's a bit of fun. But the reality is, I'm not sure that a lot of people are strong enough to be able to save their own life these days, because what we're doing in the gym doesn't really lend itself to being strong outside of the gym. Uh-huh. Was at some point during this Danish process, did you think that it would lead to potential more opportunities back in pro sport, or was that like that? Was that did that ever come into the decision making of where to press push this? I think in in terms of yeah no where we where we went to push this originally was um you know we would we were you know working in in the in the Paralympic pro sport and this was a little sort of side thing that was there was a different market you know for us it was more a general fitness market rather than you know a, a sort of elite paralympic sport is pretty niche um so we saw it as we saw it as a as an alternative um if you like the sort of then in terms of getting into pro sport, I think there was a little bit of um, how we started using it with some of the athletes that we were working with. And, you know, as I said before about Tim's going from disc in his shoulder to then never and didn't do it, hadn't since, you know, it wasn't like you were also doing some like physio rehab whilst learning to do a handstand. You'd done all of that and it wasn't working. And then this was a very different change. Um, and then we, we had, we've just had a few... Um, people get in touch we did some coaches, work with like a goalkeeper coaches. we've had uh, other snc coaches get in touch um and then we recently did a piece with the scottish rugby coaches snc coaches and physios and it's just gradually just spreading through i think a part of it rob is that people were sort of starting to play around with calisthenics like coaches using it seeing what we were doing and then there was countless people starting to who were having conversations with us about it saying when I do calisthenics my shoulders feel better and when I stop they feel worse um and that sort of led me to start to to think about 
my own experience and Jack has had his fair share of shoulder issues as well. And then we just, I did a bit of a, a lit review and said, right, well, let's start, start trying to understand what is it that we're dealing with. Um, and that brought out some, some really interesting things, which gave us a, a bit of an evidence base to then start to formulate our sort of, the, I guess, the theories that we 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 experienced from from trying it to actually going, well, what is the sort of the physiological mechanism behind why we're starting to feel like the shoulders are 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 improving as a result of training like this? Yeah, and I think there was a lot of, like you said, there was a lot of other SNC coaches that were just like us that. Once, you know, what once once I wasn't playing rugby, what was my reason for training? It was, it, you know, I, I don't know. What What is this? It's just you don't have to be that specific because there's no game of the weekend. I think there was a lot of other S&C coaches in a similar position to us that like trying out different ways of training, had seen some of, seen some of our stuff and thought, okay, that looks, I'll, I'll have a little play around with that myself and actually went on that own their own journey that was similar to ours and sort of, as Tim said, we got... The feedback started being that there is definitely a, there's a, a benefit to the to the shoulder and the upper extremities core as well. We can talk about that was a little bit different to the, what they were what we were all doing before. Um, and you know, we we feel like there's definitely a place for it um, as part of um, part of upper body programs to you know, just like someone might always want to have an Olympic lift in someone's program for whatever reason. We've, we feel that there's benefits for, for the shoulder with, with calisthenics. Mm-hmm. So let's have a little chat around building bulletproof shoulders. And it'd be interesting to, interesting to start. I know you've mentioned that the kind of lit review, but your own experiences and th- that journey that you, you've, you've been on to kind of fix your own issues and how that's played a part in building this um, philosophy around shoulder health. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess it kind of started with 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 my shoulder background. I first dislocated my shoulder at university while I was playing rugby. I think would have been about two thousand and one. Um, had a number of dislocations off the back of that, which then led to my first surgery. Uh, I actually lived abroad working as a scuba diving instructor after university for a while. <laughs> so my rugby career was put on hold, then came back and then started playing again and then started dislocating my shoulder again. Uh, led to another second surgery, uh, slap repair on, on both occasions. Um, and I just, and, and my final dislocation was I was snowboarding, um, hit a hit a little kicker badly at the end of the day and, and popped it. And at that point was pretty sort of... Um, uh, down in the dumps about it because if anyone's had a shoulder reconstruction and then they enjoy training they'll know that it's a six to nine month return back to actually being able to do anything half decent with it um and i just really i couldn't face going through the surgery again to be honest I, I, it was uh it was it was pretty depressing so i was away my wife's south african we were down in cape town and, and i was just decided i'm going to try and learn a handstand because if i can do that it's something new but also it will give me some confidence that i've got a, a more stable shoulder because all the physio stuff I'd been given hadn't worked. It, it kept on dislocating, even even to the point where I, I dislocated my shoulder doing a, a snatch drill on my UKSCA lifting workshop with an unloaded oh, bar wow. um, down the, the depths of the velodrome in Manchester um, with Gil Stevenson. Um, so not a not a great moment in my SNC career as a new coach popping a shoulder on my, on my workshop. Um, and it, it just sort of went from there. And, and it was, I remember we were in the gym the first time we started trying to play around with the human flag. And I said to Jacko, look, if this is the position my, my shoulder used to dislocate in, like overhead externally rotated. I don't actually know if it's going to stay in. Um, but I was at that point where I thought, well, 
let's just give it a go and, and we'll see. And over the next sort of like year or so, there was no light bulb moment where I thought all of a sudden, oh, my shoulder feels amazing now. It was just sort of gradual progress of just, just having far more confidence in my shoulder um, and not feeling like it was going to, it was unstable, not having episodes of it just like, uh, like shutting down on me when I was training. Um, and it, yeah, it, it just grew over a period of time where it's just, I had absolute confidence, whereas to the point now where I could do a human flag without any prep work and moving in and out of the position. Um, so there's a lot of control, a lot of stability there. And it, what's interesting for me is I, I don't know if the slap repair that I had done last is still intact because I have dislocated it since, but that was before I started my calisthenics training. And Jack always puts a caveat on this is I don't play rugby anymore. So the major cause of me dislocating my shoulders isn't part of my life. However, that I can do a lot of things now with my shoulders that I would never have been able to do um, previously. Yeah, essentially, to actually test this theory properly, you need to get your kit back on. I need to just belt you and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that. That would be a great video. <laughs> you run full pelt at me in the garden, yeah. and I'll just stick my arm out. Well, we had, we had a, there was a, there was a drill, but there was a, uh, we had Tim Stevenson as a, the former England uh, player as a coach for maybe two years. Stimson. Stimson. What did I say? Oh, Stimson, Tim Stimson. And he I was had, thinking there's a doppelganger here. Yeah, no, <laughs> Stimson. There was a, he said there was a drill they used to do at England one year called sitting ducks in the backs. You had to run, they pick a line, one guy with the ball, one guy tackler, and you had to run on the line and you were not allowed to move. So you had to, it was just a who could win the collision. So you're running down the line and this guy's like just going to belt you and it's like you either win the collision or you don't. So <laughs> <laughs> we could do that. We're not doing that. Wowza. So so in terms of the, the stuff that didn't work initially, and let's let's kind of open this up more globally, issues with traditional shoulder training and how this, the, the philosophies that you've built off the back of your experiences kind of make, make improvements on that traditional um, training itself? Yeah, I think it's – if we just sort of take it from a, a – like a top level, if we if we understand a little bit more about the architecture of the joint and actually respect the shoulder for what it is in terms of its mobility stability requirements, um, I think the real key comes down to it. And this this came out of a conversation. It was summarised beautifully by um, Dr. Ian Horsley over just a random cup of coffee when we're ta- chatting shoulders, and and he was saying you've probably got athletes all over the institute. And we're talking about the EIS at this time, um, who have got shoulders that are probably have got labral tears or a number of different issues going on. Um, but he said the major thing which is going to affect an athlete's ability to, 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 uh, to not dislocate a shoulder is the level of neuromuscular control and, and your ability effectively to keep the ball in the socket. And I think that's one thing where we, we, we don't always with this traditional forms of training respect with the shoulder in that it has so much mobility and therefore needs a huge amount of stability. Um, and neuromuscular control to be able to keep it moving in the right shapes in, in a stable in a stable position, and a lot of my physio stuff have been sort of your traditional right. Well, yeah, you're going to do so you're going to try and line you back, and you're going to balance the stability ball on your hand, and yeah, that's great from a proprioception perspective. But where the where the gap that we see f- lies is that you're going to get back post operation or post injury. You're going to do your early stage rehab. There comes a point where you're just not prepared to go back into a full SNC environment. And then even further on from that, you're not going to go back in, not ready to go back into a place like a game of rugby where you've got a, a huge amount of, of chaos effectively, where you don't know where the force is going to come from. So even from a, a physio perspective, we've got controlled drills in, in sort of a lot of in, our, in structured planes of motion. Um, 
the gym often we get our strength training will we'll be in a sagittal plane if we're going to press overhead and a lot of i think coaches are in my experience can be fairly under equipped in terms of scaling stability in the gym because we'll do our shoulder stability work which might be a, a two kilo um single arm scaption or something like that but then we're still going to go and try and push 70 80 kilos overhead in the military press and we're quite happy for those numbers to scale on the strength side but we actually don't have a lot of tools to scale the stability components of of what we're doing around the shoulder and what calisthenics does it, it actually bridges that whole gap you have to be able to move well so if you want to do a handstand you've got to get good range of movement overhead so that means getting stronger end ranges you've got to be able to control the joint through those positions and, and we get the benefits of a closed kinetic chain environment to do that and you have to be strong. If you're going to go and do any of the movements that, we, that we're talking about within calisthenics, you, you're going to have to be able to put some force down and then control that joint in these sort of outer range positions. And I just think that sets up what, what we've now sort of coined a phrase of bomb-proof shoulders, of being strong in a number of different shapes, um, which is what as, as I think the shoulder actually really needs rather than being strong to press overhead. But if, if someone's going to come and try and tackle you from, from behind and you're going to turn around and try and hand them off, have we actually got any strength in that position or stability in those ranges? Whilst we know you're probably really enjoying the podcast, there's something else that we think you will also really enjoy. Is the virtual classroom. If you're a beginner, we have got an eight-week free beginner's program designed to help you start your calisthenics journey where you're going to learn how to move better, get superhuman strong, and have a lot of fun along the way. If you're ready to take your training to the next level and learn some of the iconic calisthenics movements like a frog to handstand or a muscle-up, then inside the virtual classroom you are going to find all the training programs and educational information that you need. But rather than keeping you from the podcast for any longer than necessary, head over to schoolofcalisthenics.com where you're going to find a bodyweight training resource which is different to anything else available anywhere. Tim, I think they're ready to get back to the podcast. So for, for someone that's not been through the, the kind of issues that you have shoulder-wise or many other people have shoulder-wise, what would be the kind of starting point? I know that's a very loose question, but what would be the starting point to introduce someone into this type of training? And then where would um, you go from there? Yeah, but I, I just wanted to just to throw one additional thing that is, I guess, it is related to that. That, um, like myself, I came into to this uh, off off the back of a rugby career where um, I'd broken my scapula in, in two places and dislocated AC joint of one of my shoulder injuries, and I, the physio did a great job, and and, and Tim would say the same thing. Great job in getting us back to the point of like I've got okay, I've now got full range of motion, and you know I've done my isolated rotator cuff work, but I then went back onto the field with a massive strapping on my shoulder, and actually any time someone, I remember the the coach saying to me, "What are you doing?" Like you you need to hit the guy with the right shoulder there, and I was coming across and hitting them with the left because I just didn't know what was whether my shoulder would just blow up again, and I hadn't you. It's that gap to getting us from, okay, now you've gone through your rehab. How do we actually, as Tim says, scale that intensity of the the stability demand to get us ready for what you actually want to do in the gym with your SNC coach, what you want to be able to do on the field of play or whatever it is sport that you do. And when when I've started trying to do a handstand, for example, where if you haven't got, you know, good shoulder range of motion, you can't, you can't get into a full uh, shoulder flexion. You're not going to have a good, decent handstand alignment. And being tight from rugby, being told by um, 
a by somebody a physio or whoever to say you need to work on your flexibility you need to work on your ability because of x y and z was never enough until it was like i wanted to do a human flag i wanted to do a handstand i was like i'll work on my shoulder mobility all day long if it means that i can then do a human flag because i've got some motivation for it does that make sense and yeah consistency is one of the biggest things and having that goal um a hundred percent like has helped me change how how i move um and then the strength side of it goes goes on top of that. Um, I mean, in terms of where someone would start with, say, a little bit of uh, hand balancing, we we work a proce- through a process of um, starting at the bottom and, and sort of build our foundation and just getting used to uh, taking taking more weight on three hands and using your hands to using your hands like feet. And the brain likes to to uh, you know Tim's done a lot of. Uh, research into how the how we like to learn new skills and how the brain actually what what it wants to or the steps that it needs to go through to to learn new things more effectively and one of the things is give it in a scenario that it that it already it can attach a, a movement to or it already knows the the position so we all know what a press up how to do a press up or hold ourselves at the top or middle portion of a press up in our frog stand which is our sort of starting position for for learning a handstand our upper body and trunk is in exactly the same position as the top of our or midpoint of our of our push-up. So the brain's like, okay, I know what this is like. It knows how to push and create force there. We're just going to change the, the the leg position and bring our knees and, and and push them up onto our onto our elbows. So it's a familiar type of position. Um, but then what is really unfamiliar is having no support from your feet on the ground. And so that's like the one change one thing and, and get used to that. And it gives you the opportunity to use your hands like your feet in terms of balancing and just start to explore what does that feel like. Uh, it increases the load through the shoulder gradually, um, and but you don't have to worry about the difficulty of balancing in a full handstand, um, but you can get the benefits of that closed kinetic chain position for the shoulder. So take us through a bit of a progression from there. Where would you where would you move from there? Uh, so if you if you're going to go from from frog stand to start off with. Um, so feet off the floor, but balancing it in sort of a, a tuck position. Um, you can then start to scale that by taking one knee off um, and, and maintaining that that balance position. You can then take two knees off, and and to just to do that is is a fairly sort of um, is it, there's a pr- amount of time which is going to be required to build the strength in that shape and the control in that the, in that balance position. So that would be the foundation of our bottom section of the handstand at the same time you can then kick up to a wall so we're using the wall for some support some feedback and then practice your straight alignment you can start to take your feet off the wall gently so that you're you're learning that fine motor control of actually what the freestanding balance is going to feel like and then a piece in the middle is just to try and bridge those things and like Jacko mentioned before about an Olympic lift it's real simple in, in the same process of we'll often learn an Olympic lift by learn the first pull and then we learn the catch and then we think about putting the transition together to link it all together there's the still the same skill acquisition process in play we're just going to build that foundation from the bottom and then have learn that transition of how we move from that frog stand into a full handstand and, and we're sort of like we do we probably kind of uh, stack the deck on the strength component of our calisthenics training so we like this idea of going frog stand to handstand because what am i going to want to do next we could get people into handstands quicker by just allowing them to, to kick up and then letting them just learn how to hold a balance. But when you can do a kick up handstand, all you can really do is a kick up handstand. 
we might want guys to be able to start doing handstand push-ups or different more progressive strength-based handstand variations if you learn to go from frog stands and then build the strength to be able to press out into a full handstand you've already got some of that strength components in the locker which you can then go and do some more with effectively um and the, the thing that underpins all of this is, is it's the skill acquisition side is, is really sexy and it's addictive because you can, people get stuck in it, particularly in a handstand is a, they just keep, they want to do more of it. We always say to people, don't forget to get strong. Building that, that strength in vertical pushing patterns is an absolute sort of staple across the programs and, and something which people need to prioritize because skills in calisthenics are a lot, lot easier if you've got a big bank of strength to lean on. Yeah, and as Tim was saying before about that strength through range, that if you're just kicking up into a handstand, you're only ever really just loading up in that sort of full overhead position. What happens when you start dropping down or the shoulder wants to go through range um, or we want it to be strong through range? So starting in a in a frog stand position, we've got a certain degree of um of, uh, of of angle and range that we're going to then naturally drive and take the shoulder through to get then into our handstand, um, and then you know we go we go deeper still. One one of the things that restricts your deep position, you know, if you were doing a, an overhead press, you would take the bar, you know, all the way down uh, to his chest. You wouldn't stop halfway, sort of around your head height. But when you're doing a handstand push up, as an example, uh, or a pike push up, the floor is going to dictate how low you can go so we're looking at raising our raising our hands up so we can start to actually go through through fuller uh, ranges of motion which is building strength through that whole position rather than just giving us like one end point of of a handstand that the end point of the handstand might be the motivational thing for for the person but actually we want to make sure that we're giving them uh, a rounded strength approach to how they're going to actually get there so that we know that when they get there, they get what they want, but we've also built a more robust shoulder for them as well. Mm -hmm. So just going back to what Tim said about um, not forgetting to actually get strong. So where did, where does this, in terms of programming for an athlete, where does this, what you've just mentioned over the last 10 minutes of kind of developing that handstand, where does it fit in the wider program with the traditional strength work that might go on in a rugby club or gymnastics club or whatever that may be? Yeah, I think it all comes down to the coach's periodization of, of how they want to factor it together. Um, I think we've, we've touched on the handstand there, but the other sort of major part of calisthenics that we would base our movements around would be hanging work or on the rings as well. So the handstand is a great example, but there's lots of stuff people can do just by incorporating more hanging or ring work in a program, which would be sort of fall within the realms of calisthenics potentially as well um in terms of sort of the periodization of it we, is it obviously is going to work well from an early set early stage of a, of, a, of a cycle for example or a season where you're looking to try and build that robustness and upgrade the chassis if you want to sort of term it in that in those regards um, which is then going to allow you to put some more horsepower in down the line so we often sort of would use it as our if it take a season from sort of september onwards up until that christmas block but I, I even started with it right at the beginning when I first started putting some some of this sort of work into a training program is I'd do my prep work with an athlete. And then before we would get into the main part of the session, I had a box on my training program that just said athletic development. And I just wanted to do something which was going to help the athletes to move differently, challenge them in some way to bring some 
get them to think about doing something that they couldn't currently do. And I used to put hand balancing in there and it was, um, it was one exercise. It was just a frog stand and we spent five minutes just playing around with it. What I know now is that I was getting quite a lot of sort of benefits from a shoulder activation perspective, from some stability. The athlete was getting challenged. So we bring a number of different sort of um, psychosocial and performance benefits in as well. Um, and then we just crack on with what we were doing before. But it could be as simple as, as just putting more pulling work into your um, upper body strength phases. So rather than doing a lap pull down, we're just playing around with some more pull-up progressions. Or rather than doing a vertical press with a military in a military fashion or with dumbbells, we're going to go and we're going to try and work on some handstand push-ups instead. So they can be they can be like for like. Um, I just I, we would argue that because of the, the closed kinetic chain benefits and some of the if calisthenics is done well, it should look beautiful. Like movement should look beautiful, but it comes from the from the words of beauty and strength. And I think what you're forced to do within some calisthenics progressions, and even if we're just focusing on those that are building more strength, is you have to connect the whole system together and you can't cheat it. You, it's, it keeps you very humble in the fact of if you, if you can't create the, the connections between the segments of the body to be able to move well, then you're going to have a hard time with calisthenics and it shows people up quite quickly, which forces you to have to earn the right to progress. Whereas we often know we'll see athletes in the gym all the time who would just try and put a little extra plate on a bar, even though they probably don't have the right to have that on, but they'll try and eke out that extra rep or, or they'll just try and find a way to compensate through that movement pattern. So it, it sounds all very complicated in the acquisition process, but it really can be very simple as well by just creating some simple substitutes for, for exercises that you already have in the program. And some of the, some of it, as, as Tim was saying there about some of the hanging, like took about more pulling in there's when, when we start to look into it and explore some of these movements, it's a lot of the time it's adding a lot more variety rather than just going, Oh, a pull up it's you know the, there's so much more that we can actually do than just staying in sort of the standard uh positions not to say that we you know we do weighted pull-ups to help us get better at muscles but we're also exploring different things like archer and tight pull-ups and what's it like uh skinning the cat so being on the rings taking the shoulder through that full range of motion that it's got but you controlling your body and moving your body around the shoulder rather than just moving your arm uh, around the body and this it can you can scale it as much as you want we can do low level stuff that could be part of a warm up or we can we can scale the strength side of it it just has to be what's appropriate for the athlete for their sport um, i remember one example when we did the uh, our presentation at the UKCA conference 2 years ago and there was i forget his name the australian snc coach he said with the broncos they would do it. He was like, oh, we were doing, yeah, we were doing war walks and we were doing this and we were doing it as our prep work. And then we'd go and do like heavy bench press. So for them, he, he was doing it years ago. Um, it just maybe wasn't really, wasn't deemed or called calisthenics, but he was seeing the benefits of getting some load through the shoulder and the hand being fixed on the floor and then take as, as good prep work for the shoulder before then going into some of the traditional lifts that they were doing. And um, that was, I guess, that was just something that was really encouraging for us. And he was saying that's when they won the league. <laughs> so it, was was that Dan Baker, uh, Jack? Yes, that's right, Dan Baker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, yes. Was he wearing his horrendous shirt and uh, half cut at the time, or was that? No, he was. Pre- yeah, he was in the morning. On that, Rob. It was, <laughs> it was in the morning. It was in. It was Friday morning. <laughs> It wasn't. But the both them st- things could still apply. <laughs> <laughs> it's an your interesting words, question, though, about like if you can teach athletes have a little bit more control in a handstand or whatever. Um, 
what does that do for your snatch or for your for your clean and press? If, if you want to work on those movements, our argument is that, and we've seen it so many times. If you upgrade that stability component, you can produce more force. And I just think that's something where where I go back to the point of how equipped are we as strength and conditioning coaches to really scale shoulder stability to a, not 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 to an A level. Okay, yeah, we might have some shoulder stability exercises, but properly scale it. Like if you can see a deep handstand push-up and not to say that everyone needs to do a deep handstand push-up, but the example is that if you can get to these levels of pushing this, this, this capacity, it, it should, I think it will open up some really interesting opportunities around strength development in your traditional lifts. Yeah. And do we have it, do we have those tools that are engaging for the athlete that actually then they want to do them um, rather than giving them something that, doesn't stimulate them and in in, in is a little bit, you know, dare I say, boring sometimes it, it can be. Mm-hmm. Just want to make it clear that statement is a Rob Pacey statement. That's nothing to do with school calisthenics, uh, the Dan Baker stuff and the horrendous <laughs> shirt, but we'll move on from that. Just want to make sure you're not going to get not liable. Um, but um, in terms of that, that buy-in, it seems, it seems that that would be, that would fit really well. in, like you say, uh, Tim, in a very much an athletic development, um, youth development setting in terms of the engagement is that something that you've seen a real kind of upsurge in in engagement from maybe pro sport or even younger athletes on the kind of more public end uh yeah i think so like swimming for one is a big one of that we've um, we've done a lot of work in swimming over the years and um my wife used to run a business called swim skills where we would have sort of young sort of age group swimmers um, that would come and get a day of coaching from a, a typically like an Olympic coach and there'd be a high level swimmer there and, and then we used to run the, the the land training as they would call it component and we would include some calisthenics in that and we used to have to sort of we often would have three days um, and we used to I used to kind of hold some of the calisthenics stuff back particularly the hand balancing because if I gave it to them first thing on day one definitely from a winner in terms of getting engagement as a coach, but it was all they wanted to do for three days. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, can we do a lateral lunge now? Because that's good for your breaststroke kick. And I'm like, no, let's do a frog stand and a wall walk. Um, because it's fun. It, it, it's like play. Um, so, and I think there's, we've, we've had some really good support from a number of coaches working in that youth development um, sector, particularly using it with athletes, getting really good engagement with their, with their junior programs. And starting to sort of see it as a real valuable part of their of their programs, um, which is super exciting because we when the workshop that we did with Scottish Rugby recently was around. Yes, we're going to talk bomb proofing shoulders, but um, as Andy Boyd puts it, it, was how else do we also enhance the athletic profile? Um, and we want we want athletes to come through with these movement skills because as any strength and condition coach, and I stand by this statement though, if we get athletes that come through to us at 16, 17, 18 that can move well, getting strong is not that difficult. We can we can do that. Where we have problems is that if we get athletes that come through that don't have movement options, um, then we've got a big job to do because we're trying to help them to, to improve movement quality so we can do more stuff. But there's also performance demand of having to get them strong for that level that they're now currently trying to play at. I think if we can do a better job at youth development stages of just equipping the guys with more movement options or physical literacy, um, we set ourselves up for, for better long-term success. Nice. Um, just moving on to core stability training. And I think that's still something that probably provides a lot of discussion in the strength and conditioning community, whether, you know, I, I squat and deadlift, so I don't need to do any isolated work and just, Wanted to know your opinion on that and how that's kind of formed 
some of the work that you guys do in this same calisthenics realm? Uh, I think we probably uh, are the benefits that we've sort of seen is more related to challenging the core and that and, and spinal stability as part of the kinetic chain. So how can we, the exercises or the, the, the challenges that we're giving ourselves is a, more around using it rather than in isolation, actually as part of the, uh, the link within the kinetic chain. And a lot of the, a lot of the things that we're doing in calisthenics really do challenge your core stability um, from, from that point of view. And I think that, when you that's you know if if someone's got like a real deficiency and we need to the same way you might do some isolated rotator cuff work it's also then important that we integrate that into the rest of the kinetic chain it's it would my opinion would be that it's, it's the same with the core stability if we've got a a weakness there that we might do some isolated work but it's then a case of how do we again scale the stability same as with the shoulder and how do we make sure that it is integrated into the connect chain and whether that's um with your uh, whether it's with you know hanging from the bar or whether it's with your hand fixed on on the floor or we're using the rings there's the nice thing about calisthenics is that we can we can challenge that in um in many different ways and the majority of the time if you don't have the core and trunk strength available to you you're not going to be able to do the movement that you're trying to do um so you can't you either, you know, with them got to with them got to scale it back, but it almost gives you that that ability to to understand how well am I actually, you know, what is my what is my trunk strength and my spinal stability really like? Am I able to perform this movement or not? Do you guys do any initial? And you obviously do, but um, we've talked to us about it here. Initial assessments so you can identify where the weak links actually are and how that may play into this core stability training conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our SNC background will still sort of is very much part of our training approach and, and, um, and philosophy. So, our assessments, if we're working, if we're applying some of this into an athlete environment, will be exactly the same as, as what we would choose to use, like traditionally, whether that be overhead squat assessments, lunge assessments. We do a lot of work around shoulder shoulder um, positions and range of movements, and, and and just starting to identify any dysfunction within the kinetic chain. And I think to the point where that Jacko made around that integration of actually understanding what, what do we need that that let's as you see the term core stability what's its function and its role um, and calisthenics forces you to start to think about integrating that so just as Jacko was talking my my example would be I see people all the time doing pull ups and they've got. 20 30 kilos around the waist the, the spine's all bent out of shape because the lats are just cranking on super hard and we've, we've lost control of of spinal stability which is often i think a, a more descriptive term of what we're trying to talk about um i mean yeah okay great we've done it we've done some work in starting to improve lat strength but how effective are we going to be actually able to transfer that lat strength into the chain if the core is not operating in the same movement pattern so swimming is a great example of that we got super heavy pull-ups done with a bent back when we go in the water, what we want the guys to be able to do is hold a good body position and streamline or, or whatever. I guarantee a transfer training effect into that environment is probably not great because we we haven't we haven't sort of upgraded that that spinal or core stability at the same rate that we're actually allowing the prime mover strength to, to scale. Um, so I think it just dials it back to understanding well, what's the job of the core if you want to if you want to talk about that and 
what we're doing in calisthenics is just it's just high level core training but integrated into into wider patterns so an example that we might use for, for a more isolated exercise could be a ring rollout so feet on the floor holding the rings and just like lowering out into a straight body position uh, the closer to the, to the floor you get the harder it becomes but we're also what we're doing with that is yes we're, we're resisting sort of spinal extension um, as we as we drop forwards but we're also then getting quite a high level of shoulder stability at the same time and we know that from a kinetic chain perspective the core and the shoulder and the hip need to work well together so rather than doing something very isolated on the floor which is um like we would even start with a dead bug movement for something uh, for a beginner we're looking to try and scale it towards incorporating multi-joint approaches and maintaining spinal stability within those patterns nice so wh- where would you go from that ring rollout is that what you called it ring roller yeah i mean that's one of the, yeah. the higher level ones and, and okay. we often use that as a sort of uh that might be a supplementary exercise for learning a lever for example if you wanted to do a, a back lever or a front lever um body angle very easily like that's one of the nice uh-huh. things about the, the rings literally a beginner could do it as well they're just their body angle is going to be an awful lot more upright than say someone that's more that's more advanced and that's probably one of the things that um the difference between traditional weight training or weightlifting and calisthenics bodyweight training is that the the marker of what have I what have I lifted this week? So you can write a number down when you when you're lifting. Yeah, whereas in in calisthenics it might be like the body angle is increased for your for your ring rollout as an example. And you could write that number down as an angle, but you, <laughs> I'm. I'm I can be honest enough to say that I'm, I'm not measuring my own body <laughs> angle. I'm great. I mean, you could, but you're probably not going to. And so it's a little bit more, uh, it's, it's less rigid in that respect. But that rigidity, a lot of the time, is what people like because it's like, I did this number last week and then yeah. I did this number this week. Um, that, that's really interesting. Sorry, Jacko. In the, in, the, in the world of everything being tracked, everything being data heavy, how does that like you said, the, the almost the inability to put a, 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 def, a definitive number on it does that put people off, or do you, how do you kind of work that, especially within like a, a professional program that is maybe centrally funded and needs these objective measures to be able to keep accessing this money and all that kind of stuff? How does that play out in this world of calisthenics? Yeah, it's a challenging one because we, we've had that exact conversation a number of times. I, I do some. Um, consultancy work for British Power Swimming and we've we've had that that same thing of how do we how do we monitor our gym programs effectively and, and if we're sticking some weight on a bar then it's pretty straightforward we can we, we know what those numbers are going to look like but if we're moving body position slightly in a ring row for example that can change quite we, we, we haven't got very accurate markers on what that actually looks like so how many like arbitrary units for example if we're going to start to look at those sorts of numbers are we actually lifting um what we've what we kind of like came down to is it we, we probably need to work session rpe um effectively and just sort of get the athletes to start to understand how hard they work and how much more could they have done if we start thinking about working towards maximum repetitions or reps and reserve systems something like that where it's probably a little bit more subjective um but we but i think we have to trade that off with this obsession of collecting data to actually starting to make understand and embrace some complexity and going well it's not always going to be that easy to put a number against something but the trade off being i think that this exercise has got value and i'm i'm, I'm comfortable not being able to put an exact number against it because of these are the performance benefits that i think i'm getting um 
And that that would be my approach, at least. In, in, a, in a sport like swimming, I, I found it very difficult to try and accurately measure every component. And it might be within a program that we've still got some lifts that we can put like really good monitoring data against. Um, but that it's very difficult, I think, to try and find one system of, of monitoring which is going to be effective across all exercises if you're starting to include some calisthenics in your program. Sweet. Well, there shouldn't to... be a reason not to do it. I think ultimately, yeah, I, I, we, we use we we use a phrasing in our coaches' workshop around sort of resisting reductionism um, and embracing complexity, and I think that's that's something from a, a human movement perspective that we get quite passionate about. That we we can't always, as science and research have sort of led us down this this route of of wanting to boil it all down to these these small components which we can control. If you actually sort sort of take a step back and look at the human movement system, there's an amount of complexity in there that we need to just embrace. Um, and and that, I think that transcends it well. It transfers into how we we look at monitoring in an S and C environment as well, because we're dealing with movement. And and again, like just to throw an extra one on this, our, our experiences in Paralympic sport. So when you've got somebody who might be like have an amputation through the through the knee or have an arm missing, um, monitoring becomes much much more difficult. So it's um, we're sort of accustomed to having that's our environment that we've come from um, as well, where it's not always just very simple. Of, of these other things that we can measure because all the athletes are different. Yeah, can we we don't do all of our our coaching by numbers and you know if has someone got stronger, okay, that can that could be a number. But what about do they move better? Like I can I can I'm looking at them and I know math. I can see him like he he or she is is moving better. That's going to be that's that's of benefit. Um, and. Uh, I lost my train of thought. I was going to say something else about um, about the, not not being so worried about those about numbers all the time. Oh no, that was it. That the, um, there is some research where they've done like two groups, like bench press and then not bench press, but close connected chain, and then both groups improved bench press, but the close connected chain improved um, like shoulder stability. Um, so even like you're you're going to have some of your traditional lifts probably in your program you're hopefully going to see an improvement in those traditional lifts that can that can match that so it doesn't have to be all one or the other yeah that was that was an interesting study actually it was, it was on softball players and they'd um they, they, they both did bench press um as a as base mark tester and then the 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 open they did closed versus open ketit chain group open ketit chain group um didn't make any improvements in sort of throwing velocity or rotation speed, whereas a closed catet chain group did, even though that they were obviously training closed catet chain movements, but the open catet chain tests of throwing a baseball. And they both saw in similar improvements in in the bench press. So there's just to just sort of go that closed catet chain actually improved across the performance tests, whereas the, the open catet chain decreased performance in all of them but the strength gains were comparable. So it's, it just goes to show that there are, there is a number of different ways to, to start to change these, these parameters, but we we have to be, unless we can become open about exploring some of those, then it's going to be difficult to sort of branch out into these other areas potentially. Mm-hmm. Do you know who the authors on that, them papers or that paper was, do you? I do. It is. I've got it here in front of me. Uh, you can, uh, Propos, Propsky, I think it is. I can send it through to you. Yeah, no, I can. I can just um, try to second guess in. people thinking. I'd love. Uh, yeah, look at that. Uh, uh, Procopy, so P R O K O P Y, and it was done. I think it's a two thousand eight study. 
Um, it was tied to awards. Uh, closed catty chain, upper body training improves throwing performance of NCAA Division One softball players. Nice. Love it. Well, we're past the hour that I, I promised you, but I can I can just I just know there's gonna be tons of questions for you guys based on the last hour. What would be the best place for people to go? Where would be the best place for people to go to find out more about you guys and potentially ask any questions and see what other stuff you've got going on? Yeah, so they can um we're if people have will find us on social if you want to come and get a bit of a feel about what we're around. So if you just search School of Calisthenics on on any of the social platforms, you'll find us. Um, our website is schoolofcalisthenics.com. And if you want to get in touch with myself or Jacko directly, it's Tim at schoolofcalisthenics.com or David at schoolofcalisthenics.com. We should have made that Jacko at schoolofcalisthenics.com. Would have, people think he's got like an a, a alter ego. Alter I've, ego. Replied to some, I've replied to someone before and they were like, thank you, Jacko, but I was, I was hoping to get hold of David. <laughs> You think just um, yeah. PA, Jacko's PA. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to yeah, just do that. Uh, so, yeah, people want to get in touch with and find out. Like, we are, we're, we're so, if anyone wants to contact us directly through social, it's Jack and I who answer those questions. So, yeah, it'd be great to continue the conversation. And we've got some free resources as well, Rob, if people want yes. to check them out. We have a, yep. on our, um, a virtual classroom, we've got an eight-week free beginners program. So, you, people can can have a look at that. And they, even if, if, they're, if they're S&C coaches or working with athletes at any level that want to start to try and play around with this stuff, that's a really good onboard because you've got eight weeks of, of just a, a real overview of, of how we sort of approach calisthenics and includes hand balancing, includes rings, it includes some hanging work. Um, and then yeah, it starts. If you jump on that, you can have a, have a good hunt around and get a feel for what it's all about. Sweet. Yeah, we'll send you the link for that. So you yes. can put that in the show yeah, notes that, if you're happy to that, do that. Yeah, of course. That would be very much appreciated. But yeah, thank you very much for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. And uh, I know you're very busy, very busy doing what you do. So I appreciate you giving up uh, an hour and a bit. Well, probably an hour and a half, given the the embarrassing technical issues at the start of this. You'd think five years in, I'd actually know what I'm doing, but I don't. Not a clue. Well, Tim's, actually, Tim's actually held a handstand for the entire time. <laughs> not with his head cold, I haven't. <laughs> I would have passed out. Look like me when I go in the sun. Beetroot head. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, thanks for having us on, Robbie. Really appreciate it. It's great to, to be able to come on and have a, have a conversation and more around some of the um, the sports performance benefits of calisthenics. Um, often people sort of interested in progressions towards the human flags, but we, we're really passionate about um, the potential that it has for, as you said, this, this bomb-proofing shoulders and the um, the physical literacy components. So it's, uh, it's great to have that conversation with you. Pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And we'll keep in touch and, and chat soon. Great. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, guys. Cheers, mate. So thank you so much again for listening. We don't take it lightly that you uh, give up probably an hour of your time to listen to these podcasts. So we really do appreciate that. We hope you got a load of value out of it, guys. And we would, if you did, we would love you to do a couple of things for us. One of them is tell other people and share it if you thought that we were adding some value. And also, if you want to, pop over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and give us a five-star review. We like five stars. Four stars, not as good keep it five are the best five of your best stars please (laughs) and if you would like to find out more about the school of calisthenics and see the best of everything that we have got head over to our virtual classroom you can access it from the website at schoolofcalisthenics.com and that is where we have got literally possibly the best calisthenics resource available anywhere in the world definitely the best one we've done and on that note until next week class dismissed